to invite you, if you're going to stay in the room with us, to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 9. If you're a guest with us today, we're glad to have you. My name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer, and we're glad that you've chosen to be with us today. If you're online uh, viewing there uh, from wherever you're located, we're glad that you've tuned in here to our live stream today. Um, if you are new with us and would like some information about who we are as a church, there should be one of these guest cards somewhere around you in the room. You can fill out one of those cards, and there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. Uh, there's also, on the other side of that card, a place for prayer requests. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor and joy to do that, to walk alongside of you and bear your burdens with you. Uh, if you're online with us, uh, you can find that same information on the homepage of our website. There are, there's a button there uh, for both prayer and guest information. We'd love to connect with you and answer any questions you have or pray for needs in your life. Well, we continue our next five series this morning by looking at this topic of raising disciples. It's been at the center of who we are as a church, and to do so, we want to look at Luke chapter 9, and we'll pick up in verse 51 and read together down through verse 62. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read together this morning. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51 through verse 62. Luke writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father first. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say well, farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Now, in my 14 years of parenting experience uh, over the course of that time, I've had multiple occasions in which I've walked into the home or the living room, or my kid's home, and I've given some instructions. And I've asked them in, to engage in particular activities, right? It's time to put away the dishes, or you need to pick up your clothes, or you need to clean up all the milk that you spilt on the floor. Whatever it is, right? Um, clean up after yourself. Um, and oftentimes, whenever my kids are engaged in some other activity, whenever I ask them to perform a particular action, over the course of that time, I've gotten similar responses from them, right? Both and, either or. And it is usually something along these lines. Hold on just one second, Daddy. Right? Right? Can, can I have... A, give me a minute, please. Right? Or, or can, I, can I have five more minutes? Can I have 10 more minutes, right? Because whenever they ask that question, whenever they're engaged in something that they are doing and they don't want to break away from what they are doing in order to do what you're asking them to doing, 
asking them to do, it reveals this reality that's going on in their hearts, that's going on in the hearts of every one of us this morning, is that there are certain things that take priority or commitment or have our highest affections, loves, and loyalties above and beyond what it is for my kids that I'm asking them to do, right? They're more committed to what they want to do in that moment than what they're being asked to do by the one who is in authority over them. And the same is true for you and I. Right, the same is true for you and I, even as followers of Jesus, as disciples, as Christians, oftentimes we have things that come at higher levels of priority, greater commitments, deeper loves for the things that we want or that we prioritize, whether they believe, we believe them to be good things or bad things, than the things that Jesus has called us to. And one of the ways we define discipleship around here at Redeemer is as follows, that a disciple is someone who is learning to reorder their loves around the message and the mission of Jesus. Re- learning to reorder their commitments, reorder their priorities, reorder their affections, reorder their loyalties and their allegiance around the message and the mission of Jesus. And the reason we need to learn to do this is because it doesn't come naturally for us. Okay? We've got to learn to reorder our loves because in our lives and in our culture, our loves, our commitments, and our priorities are disordered. They're disordered. In fact, in one of his works entitled On Christian Doctrine, Augustine wrote these words hundreds of years ago. He said this, Living a just and holy life, requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. And listen to what he goes on to say. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more or a greater or lesser love for things that should be loved equally. What he's saying is this, is that what the, part of what living a holy and just life as a follower of Jesus looks like as a disciple is learning to reorder your love so that you love what should be loved, you don't love what shouldn't be loved, and you order those things that should be loved in their right priority. Right? So that you don't love something that should be loved less more than something that should be loved more should have our chiefest love, our highest affections. Right? And so that's what he, I love the way he captures that because in essence, sin is the disordering of our loves. It's being committed to things right above and beyond God Himself. And that includes even good things in our lives. Right? Even good things that should be loved, but they should be loved less than God. Right? And so as we think about discipleship, discipleship is learning to reorder our loves around the message and the mission of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 9, we read about several people who pledge their allegiance, right? Their affection, their love. They're going to follow Jesus. But Jesus challenges each of them to consider where their true loves and their true loyalties, in fact, do lie. In fact, in the final two encounters, the people actually say to Jesus, let me first do this. One of them, Jesus calls to follow him, and he says, let me first 
And the second one says, Lord, I'll follow you everywhere you go, but let me first. In other words, there's something that comes before I can actually follow you as a disciple. And Jesus challenges each of these let me first statements because in fact what they reveal is where the priority of those individuals actually lied. Not in following Jesus as a disciple, but in something else. We want to see that this morning from this text. And so I got a few things this morning that I'm going to be out of your way. But the first thing that I want us to see in this text is this, is that what Jesus does is that he's able to see our disordered loves. He can see our disordered loves. Listen, I don't know in the history channel, uh, the older I get, right, the, the more I start watching stuff my dad watches. OK, um, it's just it's just the way that it is, people. Um, but the history, the history Channel has been producing a show for several years now called The Curse of Oak Island. Some of you may be familiar with this show, but it, it's, it chronicles the story of these two brothers named Rick and Marty who are fulfilling their childhood dream. Now, they've got to be multi, multi, multi-millionaires because they invest so much money and energy into excavating this small Nova Scotian island looking for buried treasure. Okay, so they, they believe there's treasure located somewhere on this island, whether it be pirate's gold or religious artifacts or ancient documents buried somewhere deep beneath the surface of this small island. And one of the tools they use to search for these places, right, where these, this treasure may be deposited, is ground-penetrating radar. Now, ground-penetrating radar works by emitting a pulse into the ground. And as that pulse returns back to the receiver of the unit, right, it's able to identify where there are certain void spaces in the ground. It's able to identify and detect utility lines and pipes and changes in the type of composition of the ground, ge- geological features rock obstructions, air pockets, voids, excavated and backfilled areas, groundwater tables, even all the way down to the bedrock as it's shooting this beam down into the ground, receiving it back and painting a picture of what lies below the surface. And what I'm trying to tell you this morning, church, is that when Jesus looks at our lives, He's got this God-penetrating radar, okay, that is able to see beneath the surface to where our real priorities lie, what our real commitments are, what we really love, sometimes too much and greater than the things that should be loved more. And one of the disordered loves as Jesus sees beneath the surface in this text is an inordinate commitment to comfort. Look in verse 57 and 58. Look at what Jesus says as He was going along the road. Someone says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever Jesus I'm all in like wherever you go that's where I'm gonna go wherever you lie that's where I'm gonna lie your people will be my people right it's the book of Ruth all over again right here right that's I'm all in Jesus and Jesus says to him he says listen foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head Now, the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation for Himself throughout the Gospel accounts, and it comes from the book of Daniel. And here, it literally means this. The sovereign King, the ruler, the one who has dominion over all of creation, has no home. He has no place to lay His head. He left His home in heaven for a homeless existence on earth where He was despised and rejected. And Jesus looks at this man who says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And He says, listen, you don't know what you're saying. 
Because wherever I go, I have no place to lay my head. I have no home. I have no source of temporal or earthly comfort. Right? I don't have a cushy couch or a leather couch or a microfabric Chanel couch. Right? I don't have a king-size bed with a down comforter and fluffy pillows. Right? I don't have a dining room table that is set to the nines right, with all kinds of place settings and the perfect utensils for every apparatus that you might need to use them for. Right? I got the salad fork and the salad spoon. Right? He said, I don't have all that stuff. Okay? I don't have shiplap on my walls. Right? I'm homeless. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to understand that. That if you're looking, if your highest source, right, of your highest love is a temporal comfort, is an earthly ease, Jesus says, keep looking. Because it's not, you're not going to find that as a follower of mine. He says, for those who set out to follow me, they must order their everyday ordinary life around where I'm going, what I'm doing, my message and my mission, and that I will take priority over any commitment they have toward earthly comfort. Now, a disordered love for comfort in our life, a love for the easy life, right, prioritizing a particular quality of life, is a commitment to minimizing every pressure and pain point that might exist and a commitment to living comfortably. It often expresses itself in leisure, Right, So that what becomes most important to us is this kind of working for the weekend mentality. Okay, So I go to my job Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday so that I can play all weekend. Right? And so leisure takes priority over everything else in my life outside of securing the money that I need in order to play. Right? And so that's a priority that Jesus challenges is that level of comfort. It expresses itself in our day in leisure. Those who prioritize comfort above all else, listen, they often see real, authentic, genuine relationships as an obstacle. You know why? Because real, authentic, genuine relationships are uncomfortable at times. And because they take work from us. And it's not just play. Right? Because there is sin that needs to be confessed and repentance that must be done, sacrifice that must be made. And at, that t- at times, that is very uncomfortable. And Jesus says, if that's your highest priority, you need to understand that I have no place of earthly, temporal comfort. And so Jesus sees beneath the surface and He sees that commitment in the man's life and He challenges it. A second disordered love Jesus sees in this text is that of security. You see, in verses 59 and 60, he says to another, he said, follow me. So Jesus initiates it this time and says, hey, come, come after me, come follow me. But the man says to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, this is, blows our minds, right? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, let me pause for a second and say, some of us may be thinking to ourselves, didn't I read in a book somewhere something about honoring your mother and father? Right? So what in the world must Jesus be saying to this man? And But one thing you need to understand, he won't even let the guy go bury his dad before he comes to follow him. But what you need to understand is that in Jesus' culture, okay, there were no professional morticians in funeral homes. 
And so when somebody died, right, you didn't send them off to the funeral home and the funeral home would then embalm their body and then put them in a casket. And then a few days later, you would have a viewing and then a few days and the next day you would have a funeral and then, then you would inter them in the ground. That's not how it worked. From the time that someone died in the ancient world to the time that they went in the ground, right, was a 24 hour period. And if this and, and, and there were no professional morticians. And so as a result, the family was the one with the body. The family was the one caring for the body. The family was the one responsible for burying the body. And so if this man, this man's dad had just died, he wouldn't be with Jesus, wherever Jesus is. Rather, he would be at home tending to the deceased father's body with the rest of his family, his mother, his brothers and sisters. Right? And so it's the, the situation here that Jesus sees through and calls the man and he says, listen, even those who are spiritually dead, who have no life, they know how to bury their own dead. Leave the dead to bury them. You go and preach the gospel. What he's saying is this, your dad's not dead yet. But what you're wanting to do is stay home and be the, the, be, kind of be the obedient son so that you can secure for yourself your place in the pecking order so that when he does die, you would receive the inheritance that was due to you. That's what Jesus is challenging here. He's challenging the man's commitment to security in the reception of his inheritance one day. And listen, Jesus could challenge the same thing in us today. Because listen, there are so many folks within our culture and even littered within our churches whose highest allegiance, their deepest commitment is to their temporal security. And the way that often expresses itself, right? Our temporal comfort often expresses itself in a commitment to leisure and our temporal security often expresses itself in our commitment to stuff. Right? A bigger house, a better house, a nicer vehicle, more money in our bank account. And so we will leverage our lives for the sake of acquiring things. This is why some people are house poor. Right? This is why some people are swimming in credit card debt. It's not just that they're bad financial stewards. It's that they have it's an expression of what they love, what they're most committed to. They believe they'll be secure if they can climb the corporate ladder and earn enough in order to afford all the things that would make them secure in this life. They may not be waiting for an inheritance. My kids know that very well. But maybe you're waiting for your big shot, your big breakthrough, and so you're going to continue to leverage all of your energies towards that. And what is your highest commitment is the security that temporal wealth can afford. And Jesus challenges that as well. A third disordered love that Jesus sees in this text is that of approval. Approval or affirmation. In verses 61 and 62, he says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now look, elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says that to be his disciple means that you hate your mother and father, brother and sister, even your own life. Listen to what he says in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Now, that's hard language. But what Jesus is saying is this, in the kind of expression of His day, okay? He's not saying that you have to have a visceral hatred and dislike for your family. What He's saying is, is that if your love for Me doesn't so far surpass your love for your family, that what it appears to be is that because of your commitment and priority to Me, doesn't so far outweigh your commitment priority to your family, then you cannot be my follower. If I don't come first above a spouse, if I don't come first above a parent, if I don't come first above a sibling, if I don't come first above those who you share biological, uh, genealogical connections to, then you cannot be my disciple. And, and it's interesting, too, because what this man asked of Jesus is similar to what Elisha asked of Elijah in the Old Testament. If you go back and read the Old Testament, when the prophet Elijah right, is, calls the prophet Elisha to come after him, right, what, is, what does Elisha ask for the opportunity to do? To go home and say goodbye to his family. But when Elisha goes home, if you go back and read the story, when Elisha goes home and he returns to see his family, what does he do? When he gets there, he takes the plow that he used to use behind all the oxen to till up the field, and he lights it on fire. Right? He burns the plow. What does that mean? I'm not coming back here to do this. This is not where my life is. My life's not going to be defined by my family's stamp of approval on my life to continue to be the, the, the good son who just continues to work the family farm for the rest of my life. Because God has called me to something else. So he goes home and burns the plow, says goodbye to his family, and then leaves with Elijah. And Elijah would eventually place the mantle of, pro, of, 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 of the prophet in Israel upon Elisha upon Elijah's death. And he would become the prophet. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom, but only those who go back and burn the plow. <laughs> In other words, they're not going back seeking their family's stamp of approval, but they're willing to follow me wherever I call them to go and whatever I call them to do. Jesus must have discerned that in this man's heart, that the state of this man's heart, that his desire was not to go back and say goodbye, but to go back and seek their stamp of approval. Now, this love for affirmation, for prioritizing the opinions of other people and their approval, it's a commitment to being on the inside with a certain group. Right? And those with this disordered love of approval have as their highest priority being loved and respected by a particular person or a particular group of people, and they seek affirmation continually. Their mantra, right, is image is everything. Image is everything. So how they can project themselves, how they can carry themselves, how they can present themselves to others to receive their affirmation or their stamp of approval on their life. That's what they're most committed to. See, Jesus sees, He sees all of our disordered loves. 
Our love for the applause and appreciation and approval of other people. He sees our love for our own temporal security through earthly wealth. And He sees our love for comfort through our commitment to leisure and an easy kind of life. And He challenges each of those and says it must be me over the approval of others. Me over conventional earthly security. And me over a life of ease and comfort and leisure. He says, it's got to be me over everything. Now, how is it then that we go about reordering our loves? How do we do that? Right, Because Jesus sees our disordered love and discipleship is reordering those loves. How do we go about reordering those loves? And the time that we have left this morning, I'm going to share with you several ways that we can reorder our loves, our priorities, and our commitments. The first one is this, is that if you're going to reorder your loves, you've got to reorder them in community. Reorder them in community. In Luke chapter 6, when Jesus calls his disciples together and he chooses the 12 apostles, he shows that the Christian life as a disciple of Jesus. Listen, church, it is not intended to be a me and Jesus kind of life, but a we and Jesus kind of life. Right, because he didn't just call one individual and says, listen, I'm going to invest all my time in you, and then you're going to invest all your time in this one person. Right, he says, no, I'm going to bring 12 of you together. I'm going to pour my life into you, and you're going to pour your life into others, despite all the conflict that you're going to have with each other, despite all the difficulties that you're going to face because of these relationships. It's a Jesus and we kind of life. That's what Christian discipleship is. And in community, you have the opportunity to see patterns and priorities fleshed out in the lives of other people who have been walking with Jesus longer than you have. Right? They've been following Jesus longer than you have. You can see how others who have been walking and following Jesus longer than you use their time and their resources. You can see how those who have been with Jesus longer raise their kids, serve the church, devote themselves to prayer, how they commit themselves to the mission of God's great commission. You see those patterns and priorities as you observe their life because you're close enough to see that. And on the flip side, you have the opportunities to challenge one another, encourage one another. As the Bible calls us to pray for one another, sharpen one another. As iron sharpens iron, so what? One man sharpens another. And that doesn't happen just from sitting and listening to someone preach on Sunday. But it happens as your life rubs against other lives whose loves are being reordered as followers of Jesus. They're being sharpened by that. To teach one another and correct one another. Right? And so to reorder your loves, it takes place in the context of relationships with other people who are following Jesus. So that those who are younger in the faith are able to learn from those who are older in the faith. And sometimes those who are older in the faith are spurred on by the zeal of those who are younger in the faith. Right? There is this beautiful interwoven dynamic. That's why when Jesus calls... He doesn't call say, hey, you move to the mountain and just pray all day. He calls the 12 disciples to be with him and with each other. So you've got to reorder your loves in community. Second of all, you've got to reorder your loves with Scripture. And here's why. Because with a community without a commitment to Scripture at its center is just another social club. Or click. Reorder your loves with Scripture. 
In other words, I have to read this book to see what God says ought to be important, what ought to be priority, what ought to be a commitment, and what I ought to love most. Because in, in, the, in, in the Bible, you're going to find what we should love most and begin to pray that what, <laughs> what I should love, as, that, I, that I would love the things that I should love as much as I should love them, and I should love those things little that I should love less. Did you follow all that? Right? You see, what God says ought to be our highest love. And then you begin to think, where, what, where are my commitments? Where are my priorities? How is it that I reorder my life around the things that God says I ought to value? And listen, the Bible's own self-testimony says that all Scripture in 2 Timothy 3 is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that you and I may be complete, competent for every good work. And one of the good works I think Scripture equips us for in the context of being with other believers is the reordering of our loves. So that those things that we should love less that have crept into higher positions as we encounter what God says we should love more in the Bible, we're able, in the context of other believers, to have them challenge that, see it in the Scriptures, and begin to put those things in their proper place. Because what you find in the Bible is what is important to God, His revealed will. So you reorder your loves with Scripture. Third, you reorder your loves through prayer. Through prayer. Several different kinds of prayer. I would encourage you to pray as you think about reordering your loves. First of all, the prayer, and of, I would call it the prayer of penetration, like that ground-penetrating radar. In Psalm 139, verse 23, the psalmist writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, would you see my disordered loves? And would you bring those to the surface so that I can see them? Help me to see them, God. Help me to see where my priorities lie. Help me to see where my commitments are. Help me to see what I love more than I should. And then the prayer of confession, Psalm 51, whenever David is challenged by the prophet Nathan following his sin with Bathsheba. He prays this, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, that prayer of confession is acknowledging to God that I have not loved you as I should and I, in so doing, I have sinned against you. Because you're the one who is to be most loved above any and all other loves. And confessing and acknowledging that to God and then asking God in a prayer of petition Augustine, again, in his, his work, The City of God, he said this. He said, set love in order in me. In other, words, would you, in other words, God, would you reorder what I love? Would you reorder what I'm committed to? Would you reorder what I have prioritized? Asking God for the grace to love Him supremely above every other thing and to love every other thing that should be loved secondarily to Him. So these types of prayers, reorder your loves through prayers. In, in addition, reorder your loves through fasting. In the Sermon on the Mount, whenever Jesus speaks on fasting, right, he doesn't say you shouldn't fast, nor does he say if you fast, but he says when you fast. Assuming that his followers would continue the practice of fasting after his departure. 
right? Jesus got a lot of flack from the religious leaders in his day because the disciples didn't fast. And Jesus says, you don't fast while the bridegroom's present, but when he's gone, you do. And so Jesus assumes that in the future, his followers would continue this practice of fasting. Now, fasting doesn't necessarily have to be denying yourself food. It can be denying yourself something else. Something else that you see as a basic need or a basic necessity. Right, because so many times our wants get conflated with those things, don't they? Right? But to deny ourselves something for the purpose of prayer. To deny ourselves something for the purpose of saying, listen, no to myself. No to what I may love more than God. Right? To those things that have risen to places of greater priority. That ought to have lesser priority. Saying even good things, saying no to that. So that what should take first place can take first place in my life. So we reorder our loves through fasting, making that a regular rhythm in our lives. And then finally, church, listen. If you just did all these things, you'd be like, okay, well, I've I, I got to read the Bible, I've got to pray, I've got to go to a life group, right? I gotta, I, I, I've got uh, I, 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 to fast. Listen, all of these things are moving in a direction and they're moving toward a life of worship. Because we reorder our loves through worship. Let me tell you what I mean by this. In verses 51 to 56, church, there is this really interesting story in Luke 9 that's recorded where two of the disciples, James and John, they asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven on this Samaritan village that had not received Jesus with hospitality, right? So they're traveling. Jesus sends the messengers up ahead. Find us a place to eat. Find us a place to sit. Find us a place to get something to drink. They go into the village. The village says, like, no. You're not coming in here, right? All the people of the village, they did not receive him. They reject him. And so James and John says, can we call down fire from heaven? Just, right, consume that village. Wipe it off the face of the earth. And Jesus turns to them and he rebukes them, the text says. Now, why does Jesus rebuke James and John when they want to call down fire from heaven upon a village that has rejected Jesus? Right? Two possible reasons. First, is it because they were not deserving of judgment for rejecting the very Son of God who was traveling through their region they wouldn't welcome jesus into their homes right so they didn't deserve judgment because fire oftentimes in the bible called down from heaven was synonymous with judgment so you have the story of what solomon gomorrah remember that in the old testament fire and brimstone rained down from heaven to judge the sin of those cities and so he's like james and john are like jesus this is a, this is a great opportunity man put it on display right here light the match and jesus says no but it wasn't because these Samaritans were not deserving of judgment because of their rejection of Jesus. Let me tell you why. A few chapters later in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 12, we read in verses 49 to 50, Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Jesus says, it's not that I haven't come to bring judgment. I have come to bring judgment. But I wish the fire was already burning because the fire that he has come to cast, church, listen, it would be a fire that would consume him. He would literally experience a baptism by fire. 
as the fire of God's judgment, as the fire of God's wrath against sin for all of humanity would fall on Jesus at the cross. That's the baptism he's referring to. He's not talking about the baptism back in his past in the Jordan River where John dunks him. He comes up, the spirit descends, this is my son. That's not the baptism he's talking about. He's talking about something else that he would be immersed in. Something else that he would be plunged under. Something else that he would go beneath. And what he's talking about is being immersed, plunged, and sinking beneath the wrath of God against humanity's sin at the cross. He says, I have come to cast a fire, and I wish that it was already burning because my soul's going to be deeply distressed about what I know is coming in my future until the day that it arrives, because when it arrives, I will be put under the judgment of God for you. And so Jesus looks at James and John and says, no, that's not how we roll. Because the fire that's coming is coming to fall on me. That I would take the judgment. That I would take and be consumed by the fire. And church, that's exactly what Jesus has done for each of us. If you are in Christ this morning, if you've placed your confidence in Him, listen. He has written over all of your sin with His saving, substitutionary sacrifice. Written over all of it. Let me see if I can make it plain to you. I I can remember as a child the day that my parents bought our first video cassette recorder. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, some of you are a little too young to remember what those things are. Okay? You have no idea what a VCR is. Okay? But a video cassette recorder was like DVR before DVR was DVR. Okay? And so if you were watching a t- wanted to watch a TV show but you weren't going to be home to watch it, you bought a VCR. And you put that VCR there connected to your television and you programmed the VCR to record what was playing on channel 8, right? At, uh, at a certain time, and that VCR would start recording, and it had these large cassette-looking things that would go in. They had this magnetic tape that would be spooled around these two spools, and they had these rods inside the VCR that would cause those spools to turn. And as that image was projected on the TV, it recorded on that magnetic tape so you could go back and watch it later. It's a brilliant idea. Brilliant. Right? But sometimes, right, when somebody recorded something on a Sunday night, they wanted to watch later in the week and somebody else in the family didn't know that somebody else, the previous person, right, that mama had recorded the Disney Family Sunday night movie, right, on ABC, right, she recorded the Disney Sunday night movie, we're going to watch it later in the week because we can't watch it tonight, we're not going to sit down and be able to watch it tonight. And then dad would come in and record Monday Night Football on the same tape without realizing that mama recorded the movie on Sunday night. And so mom would sit down on Thursday night, put the, v- put the tape in the VCR. We're going to watch the, this heartwarming, wholesome little movie here. And all of a sudden, it's John Madden on TV talking about commentating who's going to win the football game. She's like, what? Looks at the husband and is like, what did you do? Uh, I recorded the game. I didn't get to see it. Right now with the DVR, you can record like 180. 80 hours of stuff 
right? And just sort through whatever you want to watch. But back then, listen, if you wanted to record something, oftentimes it got recorded over what was already on that tape, right? Listen, I've heard horror stories of people who've had their wedding videos recorded over with sports events, right? Because that's how it worked with video cassettes. And listen, church, for every single one of us, there is a judgment day is coming when fire will fall. And every single one of us has a tape. It has a tape with all of our sin. All of our failure. All of our lust. All of our greed. All of our covetousness. All of our rejection of God and His Word and His ways. All of us has a tape that will be played. But what I want to tell you this morning is this is that though all of our tapes will be played on Judgment Day, when judgment falls, not every tape is going to show the same thing because for every person who places their faith and confidence in Christ, I want you to know something, that whenever their tape is put in, something else other than their sin is going to be played. Because what's been recorded over their tape is the one who took their judgment so whenever their tape is played, listen, instead of, instead of watching their sin, they will watch Jesus suffering. Instead of watching their pride, they will see Jesus in His punishment. Instead of watching their addictions, they'll see Jesus' arms stretched wide in His crucifixion. Instead of seeing their failure, they will see Jesus' victory. Instead of seeing their greed, they will see God's grace and His generosity. Instead of seeing their apathy and cold-heartedness, what they will see is an unyielding commitment of God to them in His love through his per- the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Instead of seeing their lives, they will see this God who is full of grace and truth give Himself for them. Instead of seeing their lust, they will see the love of God put on full display. Because recorded over all of their sin is the person and work of Jesus. So that for every time in which they failed to keep God's revealed will, they will see Jesus keeping it in their place. And for every time in which they did something they should not have done, they will see Jesus stretched arms on Calvary. For every failure, Jesus' victory will be recorded over. And because of that, church, He's worthy of our worship. And when that gets a hold of your heart, and you sing in the car on the way to work, you sing in the shower, even without the radio playing, and you sound really good, right? Because everyone sounds good in the shower. If you could just put enough reverb everywhere else, you'd be all right. Right? But you sing in the shower and you gather here on Sunday after Sunday and we lift our voices together to declare the splendor and the majesty and the beauty and the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ and His Spirit that indwells each of us prompts us to lift our voices and our hearts to God in worship. Worship begins to reorder our loves and loyalties, our priorities and commitments. 
is our hearts are poured out before God. And listen, that's one of the ways you can know that it is true spirit-filled, heartfelt worship. It's not because of the emotional experience you have in the moment, but because of by the resetting and the rearranging of priorities and commitments that go out of that. Yes, there is an emotive experience, but has that reset priorities? Has that relaunched commitments in your life? We reorder our priorities and love through all these things, through the Word, through prayer, through fasting, through community. But all of that's moving toward this life of worship because worship church takes our hearts to the throne of God and says, here I am, all of me, I belong to you because you are great, I am not, and you are worthy of everything that I have. My comfort is not worthy of my highest commitment. My security is not worthy of my highest commitment. My approval in the eyes of other people is not worthy of my highest commitment. But Jesus, because your life and death was recorded over all my tape, You're worthy of my highest commitment. You took the fire for me. That begins to rearrange things in your life. That's why we say discipleship is the reordering of our loves around the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. So that whenever Jesus calls, we don't say, but let, let me first Let me first. And as we move into the next five, and Lord willing, for as long as Jesus tarries, our vision at Redeemer is to be a church that would raise these kinds of disciples. Right? These, these were not varsity disciples. What I've described here. And then there's like JV and freshman squads, right? These, this is what it means to be on the team. This is what it means to be in the locker room. This is what it means to be on the field. This is what it means to be sitting on the bench, even when you feel like you're sidelined a little bit because of circumstances. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That our apathy will be melted away. That our desire for approval will be melted away. That our desire for security and for comfort will be melted away and all replaced by this. One consuming love that would set all the other loves in their right place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the joy of what it means to know you that can only come because of Christ. And knowing that we are his forevermore and that he is ours forevermore, even as we've just sung. That he's completed all the work that we needed to set our feet on the path of discipleship. And as we worship your son, by your spirit to your glory, Father, May you reset the things that we're committed to 
And may that express itself in the everyday realities of our lives. So that our discipleship would become the most attractive witness to reaching our neighbors, even as we talked about last week. All because of the work of your son. Father, we ask corporately that you would see into our hearts, surface those things that are there, and through worship, and through fasting, and through your word, and through prayer, and through other believers, that you would reorder our loves and loyalties, our allegiances and affections, that you would be supreme and everything else secondary. We would love what is most lovely the most, namely you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.